Romans chapter 13, and I know that your bulletin says verses 1 through 8, but it should say Romans 13 verses 8 through 10, and so we're going to look at uh, just under 50 words in three verses, Romans 13, 8 through 10. This morning we are in that applicatory section of Romans. I'm going to keep reminding you of that, chapters 1 through 11 is the doctrinal section in which um, all of those precious uh, indicatives of the Christian faith, the facts about who Christ is and what he's done are set out so marvelously by the Apostle Paul. And now, what difference should that make? What, what impact should that have on your life if you've been justified, if you, you're being sanctified, if you've been adopted, if you're going to be glorified? And, and Paul has meticulously and strategically woven together applications and he continues to do that in a very logical and coherent manner so that all of these things are interconnected, flowing one into another. The last time we were together, if you were not here with us last Lord's Day, we looked at that uh, imperatival section in which the Apostle Paul charged Christians to obey the civil authorities whenever they do not command us to do evil, or forbid us from doing good, because they are God's servant, they're God's minister, and they do not bear the sword in vain. And you'll notice that what the apostle says at the end of that section in verse 7 is going to be what dovetails into what we're going to look at this morning. Notice there in verse 7, he says, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And now the apostle says in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, the fourth century early church theologian Jerome in his commentary on Galatians recounts a story that has been often repeated throughout church history, and we're assuming that it has come down to him with some accuracy, but Jerome, in his comments on Galatians 6.10, uh, makes this statement about the Apostle John. He says, John the evangelist lived in Ephesus until old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak in many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but little children love one another. Little children love one another. Jerome says the disciples and brothers in attendance annoyed because they always heard the same words. Finally said, teacher, why do you always say this? He replied with a line worthy of John, because it is the Lord's commandment. And if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. Now, I think that's a very powerful sentiment and one that every Christian in every age needs to hear recurrently. 
Now, the Apostle John was rightly denominated the Apostle of Love because in 1 John, he is everywhere saying, whoever's born of God loves his brother. He who does not love is not born of God. Love is such a preeminent focus in the Apostle John's ministry, and yet it is no less of a focus in the Apostle Paul's ministry. The Apostle will highlight the centrality of love in the Christian life, in the Christian fellowship, and among our neighbors as the fountain and the chief of all virtues. Now let me say this this morning. The Apostle Paul is not saying what John Lennon said, all you need is love. Because the Apostle has gone to great length to tell us in the first 11 chapters, you need saving faith in Jesus. And that faith is the instrument by which we are united to Christ. It's the instrument by which we receive what he accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. And it is the alone instrument by which we are justified. We are not justified by our love. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And yet, the Apostle Paul will everywhere in his letters make the very important point that wherever a believer is living in faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving and resting in him, trusting in him for righteousness, for forgiveness of sins, for justification, and for all the blessings of God, wherever that grace is, that then works out actively with love in the Christian life so that the believer is marked preeminently by love toward those around he or she. Now, this little section is so rich and so pregnant with uh, theological truth. I've been meditating all week on this, how, how much we need to hear about God's call that we would love one another, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, that's going to take very careful unpacking because, as I said a few weeks ago, in our age, love is sentimentalized so much. D.A. Carson makes the important point that, sadly, when we talk about the love of God or we talk about the love that God requires among us, Carson says in our day, love has been sanitized, democratized, and sentimentalized. It has been sanitized. It's been made to look nicer and easier than it is. It has been democratized. Whatever the collective societal consciousness is on what love should look like, that's what it should look like. And it has been sentimentalized. Well, I think love makes me feel good about whatever I'm doing and what everyone else is doing. And that is very far from the biblical definition of love or the biblical call for us to be men and women who live our lives deeply committed to loving our neighbor as ourself. Now, I want us to consider just three things as we look at these verses together. First, I want us to consider what the apostle says about the debt of love. Then I want us to consider what he says about the command to love. And then finally, the expression of love, the debt, the command, and the expression of love. Now, Notice that Paul has seamlessly moved from that section in which he has told us that truth that so many of us don't want to hear. Pay your taxes, give honor to whom honor is due, submit to the governing authorities. And notice that what Paul has said there at the end again is pay to all what is owed them taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is 
is owed. There is a debt, an obligation from God for you and me to fulfill those responsibilities in the spheres in which we are living our lives with the structures that he has appointed. But then Paul does something very interesting on the hinge in verse 8. He makes that little statement, oh, no one, anything. Now, just like so many well-meaning believers have heard the call to turn the other cheek and to go the extra mile, and they have mistakenly become pacifist and said that Christians are never to be engaged in war or in military service or in any other thing that is contrary to pacifism. So this phrase has often been misconstrued to say that God is against you borrowing money in any way, shape, or form. That is not what the apostle is saying. In fact, the Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if anyone asks to borrow from you, lend. And it is ontologically impossible for you to live in this world and accrue no debt. Let me explain. You may say, well, I'm against you borrowing for a mortgage. You should rent. Well, when you rent, you are borrowing a commodity from someone else. It is absolutely metaphysically impossible for you not to have any debt of any commodity of any sense whatsoever. But what the apostle is warning is that there is a grave danger to accumulating debt and owing others what we are not readily wanting to pay back. Now, I don't think the purpose of the Apostle Paul is to give a long diatribe about debt in any way, shape, or form. His purpose is to talk about the debt of love. But in doing so, he is saying, look, we ought not to be those that delay in paying what we owe to others. We ought to give others what we owe them. And yet, notice this, he says, owe no one anything except to love one another. What he is saying here is that I am indebted to every single person around me to love them. I owe them a debt of love. John Murray, the great professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, said love is a perpetual obligation. It's a perpetual obligation. You'll never pay it off. If you are one of those people that are really into Dave Ramsey, let me tell you something this morning. There's a weightier word than anything Dave Ramsey is going to tell you, ever. You will never pay off the debt of love that you owe to your neighbor. For the rest of your life, every second, every interaction, every relationship, we owe each other love. We have an obligation and a debt to one another. Listen to this. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, you don't have a choice. I love this. You don't have a choice about loving your fellow neighbor. You owe that to your fellow believers and neighbors. Not only can you never fully pay it, you never want to see that debt cleared. It's a debt you never want to see cleared. I owe everyone else around me a debt of love. Now, that's a marvelous word. My, how that would radically transform marriages, the relationship between parents and children, children and parents, how it would radically transform relationships in the workplace, how it would radically transform relationships in the church, in the community. If every single believer took to himself or herself the truth that I owe love 
to every single person around me. I am absolutely indebted to pay off this debt of love that I can never fully pay off in every circumstance, in every relationship. Listen, I really like what Jerome said about John the evangelist being carried in and saying little children love one another and noting that apparently the disciples were annoyed by hearing that so much. You know why they were annoyed? Because this is the one thing we ought to love and yet our flesh revolts against it. It revolts against it. What about me? When do I get a little piece of attention? And the apostle says, listen, you owe love to your neighbor. You owe love a debt of love to them, to care for them, to do them good, to bless them, to build them up, to protect them, to cover their sins, to lovingly uh, reprimand them when they need the love of someone else, to care for them and to do them good. There is, first of all, a debt of love. But it's not just a debt that is sort of a volitional obligation that we all contractually decide that we're going to get on board with. It is a command, secondly. It is a command to love. Now, I went through the scriptures, and and I only pulled out about seven or so verses out of the New Testament. There are probably... There are probably 75 to 80 verses that focus on the Christian uh, being commanded by God to love one another and to love your neighbor and to love your enemies. We've already seen earlier in chapter 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, clothe him. We're to love them. We're to bless those that curse us. We're to bless and not curse. We're to pray for those that spitefully use us. We're to follow the example of Christ who loved his enemy, who on the cross cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Who stooped to wash the feet of his betrayer who he knew was going to betray him in just a few matters of hours, in just a few hours. The love of the Lord Jesus, even for his enemies. And Here's what I came up with, just a few of the more prominent verses about the command that God has given us to love. Listen to this. In John 15, 12, Jesus told the disciples there in the upper room, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I was meditating recently on how The Lord calls husbands to love their wives. And there in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Sacrificing everything, laying down everything, giving up everything, providing everything, being patient always, being tender always, being gentle always, going going the extra distance to make sure that our wife is cared for tenderly. That's the command. We love our wives as Christ loved the church. Here the Lord Jesus says, this is my command to all of us, that you love one another as I have loved you. My, what a word, as I have loved you. There's a a profundity to that. No one has loved the way the eternal son has loved, laying down his life for us on the cross. John 13 34 and 35, again, there in the upper room, Jesus said, a new commandment, I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will people know whether you really are in truth what you say you are and profess to be? 
Because at the end of the day, any one of us can stand here and say, I'm a Christian. I know all the doctrine. I'm and if we don't love, Jesus said, no one will know that you're my disciple. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have to one another. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.2 says, walk in love as Christ also has loved us. 1 Thessalonians 3, he says, the Lord make you increase and abound in love one toward another. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. 1 Peter 1.22, Simon Peter, the Apostle Peter says, seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently from a pure heart. And 1 John, the Apostle John, chapter 4, verse 21, this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I want to press this in this morning. If love were operative among us to the degree and in the way in which God wants us to follow the example of Christ in loving one another fervently, in laying down our lives for one another, how radically transforming that would be on the world in which we live. And let me say why. Because only those who have been redeemed by Christ can do that. You can tell the unregenerate man or woman all day long, you've got to love. And they hate everything about that in their heart. Really, truly, biblically defined love. But the believer has been animated by being purchased by the blood of Jesus, by being redeemed from our sin, by being rescued from perdition, by being sealed with the Spirit of Christ, by being given all the sweet graces of the Lord Jesus, so that we, of all people, are the ones that God has enabled to love one another fervently. So the command is not burdensome. You see, part of the problem when we think about commands, and we're going to talk about law and love here in a second, is that if we're honest, most Christians think commands are bad and heavy and weighty and love needs to be detached from commands and just operate on its own. But love itself is commanded by God. And it's liberating. God has redeemed us to be free to love. When the apostle talks about what the natural man is like in in our natural condition, fallen in Adam, in Titus, he says at that time we were hateful and hating one another and hating God. That's, that's, that's the natural condition of all men. Um, but, but when we've been redeemed, God gives us liberating commands. Now, I want us to focus the bulk of our attention not just on what the apostle says about the debt of love and not just about the command to love, but the expression of this love, because it would be very easy to stop this sermon right now and me meet you in the back and you say, you know what, I hear lots of people talk about love, but here's what I think and here's what they think, blah, blah, blah. And the apostle doesn't, he doesn't leave any room for confusion. He doesn't, he doesn't leave it up to you to debate with me or you with each other about what you think love should look like. He tells us very clearly what the expression of love looks like. Notice he says, he says, uh, oh, no one anything except to love each other. The one who loves another has fulfilled 
the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul appeals to what we often call the second table of the law, the last six of the Ten Commandments. And he does that because what he is charging us with, what he's charging the believers there in Rome with, is not the responsibility so much in the relationship toward the Lord. He's already done that at the beginning of chapter 12. But, but on the horizontal plane, our relationship to our fellow image bearers. What, what does God require of us? How do I know what I owe another person? How do I know how I should conduct myself to others? And what Paul does is something marvelous. He doesn't say, well, here's the law, do it. And he doesn't say, well, here's love, just do that, there's no law. He brings together a perfect marriage of law and love. And he says, listen, the the purpose of the commandment, he'll say this elsewhere, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a sincere conscience. So that if I'm not loving others and I divorce law from love, I'm going to end up in one of two very grave errors. You have to listen very carefully. If I divorce law from love, I'm going to end up in one of two very different grave errors. Listen to this. Eric Alexander puts this so helpfully. He says, genuine love fulfills the law. Love needs law for its direction... Law needs love for its inspiration. Love apart from law becomes soft and directionalist and amoral. Law apart from love becomes hard and clinical and damaging. So if you're one of those people given to, well, keep the commandments, then you're hard and clinical. And if you're one of these people, just love, you become soft and amoral and embracing everything. You see, there's a grave danger when we extrapolate love from law and try to deal with one or the other without seeing them as it has been so helpfully said as in-laws of one another. Love and law are in-laws of one another. They cooperate together, they work together, they're related together and in fact, scripture teaches us that love is the kernel of every command. Now what is that how does that express itself? How, do, how does this, what does this look like? What's the, the flesh on that skeleton? Well, um, Martin Luther reflecting on what Paul says there at the end of verse 9, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this. Luther says, listen carefully, no one wants to be robbed. Does anybody in here want to be robbed? I'm, I'm going to go out and just say, I don't want to be robbed. I don't like pain or surprises or somebody sneaking up on me or taking my stuff. So nobody wants to be robbed, Luther said. Nobody wants to be harmed. Nobody wants to be murdered. Nobody wants to have their marriage disrupted by adultery. Nobody wants to suffer through perjury. Nobody wants to be defamed. Nobody else wants somebody to covet what we own. But Luther says, But if he is not so disposed that he does not want his neighbor to suffer all these wrongs, then already he is guilty of transgression. You see, it's not enough for us to say, I don't want to be robbed. I don't want to be cheated on. I don't want somebody to murder me. I don't want somebody 
to, to defame my name and slander me. It's not enough to say that if I don't look out and say, and I don't want those things for my brethren and for my neighbor. You see, love becomes the, the fuel of what it ought to look like in practical, tangible ways according to God's law for me to do good to others. Now, we live in a very difficult time where many, if not most, of the things God calls evil or society calls good and many of the things that are exceedingly harmful, they say, are loving. But you see, God's law restrains that sort of nebulous sentimentalizing of love and it says, here's what love looks like in action. If I love my spouse, I am going to be faithful to her. If I love my neighbor, I am going to seek to bless them. If I am doing work for someone else, I am going to seek to go out of my way to make the most excellent uh, blessing I can give them in my labors. If, if I see someone in need, I am going to go down and try to help them. If I see someone in a time of despondency or despair or depression, I'm going to try to uplift them and bless them and help them. If I see someone going wayward into sexual sin, I'm going to try to rescue them. Because it's supremely hateful to let somebody destroy themselves and others by violating God's commandments. And so if we want to know what love looks like in action, we look at the second table of the law. We honor our parents. We respect those in authority over us. We honor our marriages. We honor the lives of others around us. We defend the lives of others around us. That's, that's the tangible shape and form of love in action where law and love are in harmony together in every sphere in which we live. You know, it's really interesting. This is either going to be very evident or we're going to have to try to convince people that we're doing it. You have to listen very carefully. It's either going to be very tangibly evident because it's a reality in our lives or we may pretend like it's evident and try to convince others that we're doing it. John Owen, reflecting on that early church, said that there was a, there was a sort of a proverbial speech about Christians in the early church that uh, the unbelieving world around them would say, see how they love one another. They would even lay down their lives for one another. It was tangible. It was evident. It was countercultural. It was counterintuitive. It was, it was not modeled anywhere else like it ought to be modeled in the Christian fellowship. Um, you know, Paul says here, love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's a good leading principle for us. So we leave here today and we think about these things and we, we think about, okay, how am I loving others? There, there's a real danger that we start to compartmentalize. We can say, okay, I'll start doing that with my wife and my children, but not with church members or not with my neighbors or not with my coworkers. We can start to pick and choose the commandments we think we're better at. Well, you know, I've never murdered somebody. Well, Jesus says if you hate your brother without causing your heart, you're a murderer. 
Well, I've never actually committed adultery. Jesus says whoever looks at somebody not their spouse with lustful thoughts is an adulterer. And, and one of the marks of the Pharisees was that they took the law and they said, well, we're really good at taking a 24-hour day period, the Sabbath, and then setting it up over here and then creating around it all these rules and regulations that make us think like we're keeping it when they tried to murder Jesus. You see, we can leave here and we can say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the things I think I'm good at. I'm going to do those. But Paul says, listen, here's the general principle. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here are the commandments. This is what it should look like. And here's the big principle. Love does no wrong or harm to its neighbor. There was a man I've told you about perhaps a year or so ago. His name was John Skilton. He was a professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia for 43 years. And and John is remembered very affectionately in Philadelphia as the most loving man you've ever met. He died at 98. He was never married. I think I told you when I was a boy, we would go to the Skilton House in the Vietnamese section of Philadelphia. And John, at that time, 80-something years old, would sleep on the floor, and he would allow missionaries and homeless people to sleep in his bed. You can't manipulate that. You can't fake that. Um, John was so tender and gentle and kind. He was marked... He was marked by that supernatural Christian love that the Apostle Paul is speaking about. And John had a saying. He had one rule at his house. He said, we want you to enjoy yourself. It's a good rule to have. We want you to enjoy yourself in a right way. And then he had another saying that he constantly said. He said, my goal in life and our goal in life ought to be to leave others better than we have found them. We ought to leave others better than we have found them. Um, That's a high standard. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Love doesn't speak well to our neighbor um, to their face and then trash them behind their back. Love doesn't try to make people's lives as difficult as possible so that we get our way. Self does that. What's, what, is the, what, is, what is the antithesis of this? Well, it's, it's merely wanting to please myself. Now, here's the marvelous thing. Paul actually says in here about the expression of love, that, that, and he, he quotes Leviticus 19 and throughout the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever good you would do to yourself, whatever, whatever care you would show yourself, whatever, whatever desire to extend your life and and to, to, to stay on top of all the things in front of you and, and, and to lighten your own loads. Think about others and think about how you ought to do that to them. If we would do it for ourselves, would we not do it for them? I mean, the apostle uses that very logic when he talks about husbands loving their wives in Ephesians 5. He says, nobody ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it. So husbands ought to do that for their wives. Now, let me say this this morning. I know this much. I'm 46 years old. I know this much from my own sinful heart and experience and from everything else I see everywhere that we have a propensity to want to love ourselves and not love others. And what Paul is saying is in so much as you love yourself and want to do yourself good and don't want harm on you, so think about your neighbor. How can I bless them? How can I build them up? Now, let me say this this morning. 
the only way you can do this is if you have been redeemed by Christ. The only way you can do this is if you have been an object of the redeeming grace and mercy and love of Jesus. If Christ has rescued you and shed his blood for you, if Jesus has taken all of your lawlessness on himself, if he has taken the wrath that you deserve, if he's taken the judgment that we deserve, if he has stood in our place for our sin and become sin and a curse for us and has transformed us by his grace, then the only response that we ought to have is, how can I be a blessing to others? How can I lighten their load? How can I do them good? How can I leave them better than they are? Now, again, that doesn't mean we never say hard things to one another. I want to stress that this morning. The Proverbs say, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. There are times, not all the time, because the Bible also says love covers a multitude of sins. There are times when open rebuke is necessary, one brother or sister to another. There are times that we have to say hard things to each other. There are times when the most loving thing we can do is to warn each other of the danger that we're in because of the sin that we are ensnared in. And if it's done with the purpose of rescuing, restoring, and building up our brother and sister, and it is driven by love, then that is love in action. If it is done legally to prove a point that we're more righteous than somebody else, then it is hateful, and it is not an expression of love. And if we think that we're going to justify pointing out the flaws of everybody else because it's loving to speak the truth, and if I don't speak the truth and I'm not pointing out all their faults, ah, that's not love. Love covers a multitude of sins, and it takes wisdom. And it takes grace-based relationships. Listen, this only works if we're living in grace-based relationships. If I say, I believe that the totality of my Christian life is merely by the grace of God, I am totally undeserving in every way because I am wicked. And because he sent Christ to redeem me, and it's all grace, and I've done nothing to merit it and he freely gives it to me by grace, then my life and the atmosphere of my life ought to be pursuing grace-based relationships with other believers. My best friend has constantly reminded me that the self-righteous heart of professing believers is so easily offended that we're ready to throw away every relationship at one offense. But the apostle says, love never fails. Love endures forever. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Listen, kindness, meekness, gentleness, they're all corollaries of love. Love is the fountain from which all those other virtues flow in our relationships. And I want to say this this morning. As much as I can stand up here and try to explicate this to you and explain these things to you and try to logically connect all these things, when we are loving one another as we love ourselves, you don't need anybody to point it out. It's evident. It becomes evident. Now listen, I really don't want anything else for this congregation than this. 
Um, remember the words of the Apostle John if he said that. He said, why do you keep telling us this? He said, because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. How marvelous if people coming into our fellowship could say, I don't know much about those people, but I know that they love. I don't know much about them, but I know that they are people marked by love for others. It's not our job to try to straighten everything out. It's not our job to straighten out all the political quagmire in this country. It's not your job. You have a responsibility to be a good citizen. It's not your job to straighten everything out. It's not your job to live the Christian life for others. It's not my job to live the Christian life for you. It's not our job to be the fourth person of the Trinity, one to another. There's a Savior. His name is Jesus. It's his job. I have a friend that likes to say, people come to me, they say, you're the guy with the answers. No, I'm the guy that points you to the answers. I point you to the guy that has the answers. It's not our job to straighten out everything. It's our job to actively pursue loving those around us. And I know that the more we do that, and the more evident it becomes to others that that's happening around us, it is a marvelous testimony to the Lord Jesus and to his saving grace. And when Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another, he is essentially saying, and I've heard one theologian state this, the greatest evangelistic tool in the belt of the Christian is loving one another. The greatest evangelistic tool in the belt of the Christian is loving one another. I'm going to read to you as we close, again, Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And I want to encourage us to meditate on this. There in verse 4, Paul says, love is patient. Am I patient with others? That's not one of those natural virtues for me, y'all. My wife will tell you that. I'm a very impatient person by nature. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is kind. Kindness is not effeminacy. It's not a weakness. It's a strength. It's manliness. It's Christ-likeness. It's God-likeness. Love is patient. Love is kind. Oh, this one hurts y'all. Love does not envy or boast. It doesn't say, I want what they have because I don't have it. It doesn't say, look what I have that they don't have. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, ouch, or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Listen, love bears all things. Love doesn't give up on a neighbor. It bears the burdens. Love bears all things. It believes all things. I know that this person can change. I know that they can grow. I know that God's grace can be at work in them like it is in me. It hopes all things. It endures 
all things. Love never fails. Love never fails. I want to charge you this morning as we hear this and we go from this place that we would ask ourselves, how am I seeking in all my relationships to demonstrate and to embody the sort of love that the Lord calls us to through the Apostle Paul in not doing harm to our neighbor, in seeking to do them good as we would have good done to us, in building them up according to God's commands and holiness and the definition of what love looks like in action, and in, in bearing long in wisdom with those around us, even and especially when they're not loving us. And that we wouldn't seek to reduce our pursuit of love down to one thing we think we're good at. Well, I really like truth, but I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I do boast. I am envious. I am irritable. But that we would look at the totality of what Christian love is and we would say, Lord, would you please make me a man or a woman who exemplifies that that kind of love in my relationships so that I am leaving others better than I have found them. Only the Christian can do this. And how marvelous, if we're in the Lord Jesus, that he enables us to do that. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are painfully aware of how often we have um, lived and acted and spoken in lovelessness. Lord, we are aware of how we have uh, sought that love which is not love at all, but which is lawless. And we are aware, Lord, of those times that we have sought to impose your commandments on others apart from law and have done so with harshness. Lord, we need the grace of the Lord Jesus to conform us into his image, to give us that sort of self-sacrificial love that seeks to do our neighbor good, even as the Lord Jesus did the greatest good for us in redeeming us from the judgment to come and renewing us and restoring us. Father in heaven, we pray that Church Creek Presbyterian, each one of the men and women and boys and girls here would be marked by that sweet grace of Christian love. Lord, make us a people that see the importance of the primacy of love in all of our relationships. Give us wisdom in the expression of it. Make us faithful, Lord, in how we uh, exemplify it one to another. And we pray, our God, that you, by your spirit, through your word, would make this an evident and tangible mark of our fellowship as we go into our various workplaces and vocations this week ahead, we pray that we would carry hearts that are full of Christian love to our neighbors there, whether they know you or not, to our neighbors in the communities in which you have put us, and especially to our brethren in the household of faith. Oh God, would you do this for us? Make us a people who are committed to loving others, building them up, and leaving them better than we have found them. And so, Lord, would you do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.